0: Amen. Didn't Mara do a great job with all those names? Thanks be to God for Mara today. One of the abiding values of the Word of God is that we're privileged to see the true people of God being the true people of God in a wide variety of situations. We see them dancing on the shores of the Red Sea, with tambourines in their hands shouting about God's victory. You know, I will sing unto the Lord for horse and rider he has thrown into the sea. We see the people of God on days of consecration and holy fear and in the midst of trembling and lightning and thunder in all before God at Mount Sinai as God revealed the words of the holy covenant. Who can forget that high and holy moment when Isaiah was caught up in that great grand vision of the temple where he hears the Lord ask that great question that many of us have heard as well. Who who will go for us? Whom shall I send? And Isaiah says, here am I, send me. Those are amazing moments where we get to see God's people be God's people. But the Word of God also invites us into those really amazing intimate moments For example, there's a quiet moment when a young boy, probably about Drew's age, nine years old or so, who is there in his bed one night, and God speaks to him and says, Samuel, Samuel. And from that comes the whole prophetic stream of God's work, right there in the midst of a time when we're told the word of God was rare in those days. When, a, when the ark of God is captured by the Philistines, when women are naming their children Ichabod because the glory hath departed. See, the people of God have to be the people of God then too, don't they? Many of us, of course, would love to live in the exclamation marks of life. We want to live at the time when the word of God rings forth and we can have a timbre in our hands, but so often God calls us to live and the difficult times, the question marks of life. If you live in exclamation point, Tom, things go straight, you can see clearly, but when it's a question mark, you can't see around the next bend. You wonder what lies ahead of us. We all know what it's like to look at the promises of God and someone saying, wow, look at all the land of milk and honey, and someone else saying, but yeah, look at the giants. We understand this world we have to learn to recognize the times that we live in. And we're certainly living in one of the great seams of history. It goes far beyond church history. The larger world that we inhabit is certainly a land between modernity and post-modernity, the seam between Christendom and post-Christendom, the seam between a predominantly Western Christianity and an emergence of a vibrant post-Western Christianity. We live in a post-communist post-Christendom, post-denominational, post-Western, post-Enlightenment, post-Truth, post-Modern, and for some people, a post united Methodist world. We don't, even know what, we don't even know what to call it. We just call it post. We know we're, we're beyond something. We have no idea what is there before us that we face. A little bit like the Iowa caucus. It's kind of like a chaos. <laughs> no one wants to do It's not just a bad night. It's a sign of our times, isn't it? For many years, seminaries across America uh, conceptualized the world as the equivalent of the promised land, a land flowing milk and honey, a land where steepled towns rang bells and the faithful gathered to hear God's word. A land where Judeo-Christian ethics were widely embraced in our culture. This is of course mostly mythology, but this was the way we conceptualized the world. But at some point, those who teach students and those of you who went out and actually pastored churches begin to send emails back and phone calls back and text messages back and say the land's not like what we thought. It's really difficult out here. It's not Wilmore. We're not we're no longer in Kansas, Toto. Something's amiss here. We thought we were supposed to go out and sing the songs of Zion, but now here we are hanging our harps, and we're in a time of lament. I'm not lamenting that we're in a time of lament, because lament is the mother of hope. Lament is what... The, the laments were written in the Psalms during this very time that Nehemiah embodies, where they, they hope for a better day. It caused the church to remember things that have been forgotten. And so we don't want to lose the landscape that's before us. Our text before us reminds us that Nehemiah lived in a same time too, didn't he? Nehemiah lived in a time which was post exile, but pre Messiah. The long night of exile was over. The Jews were returning, but there's still no Messiah. The walls of Jerusalem are torn down. The gates are burned with fire recalling a day when things were better and hope seemed dim. This is a time of lamenting and one can only wonder what kind of conversations were taking place around the dinner table at night as they, these few scraggling people began to gather around and wonder what might happen. If on the eighth day God had said, let there be Zondervan, or at least let there be Seedbed, think of the books that could have been written at that time. Just think Moses could have been a best-selling author. How to pass through your Red Sea. I can see it now. Moses could have written, you know, the follow-up book, The Purpose Driven Nation. And of course, it would come with a study guide and video clips. Moses actually left us five books, and Nehemiah gave us a book too, but we just call it Nehemiah. But if it was sold as a separate book, that would be called something like, I don't know, think about it, Living as a Jew in a post-Judaism world or Life Amidst the Rubble. That's a good title for this book because Nehemiah wants us to understand what it means to be faithful to God in the midst of a post-Jewish, post-covenant, post-Temple world, as well as our own post-Christendom, post-modern, post-truth, everything else world. Nehemiah is very clear-eyed about the challenge they face no other book kind of names the forces arrayed against them. You know, they have their Sanballats and Tobias that they name and face that are arrayed against them. We have our own Richard Dawkins and Sam Harris's and those arrayed against us and some of them are bishops and pastors and church leaders. It's all part of the world we live in, isn't it? A time when it looks in the whole matrix of the educational system, political apparatus, media, everything seems to be arrayed against us. And the Lord calls us to get on with it because God has shown us already all through Scripture the people of God have shown how to be the people of God in times a lot worse than ours. We are inspired by it. And I have to be thankful to the the great insight from Walter Brigham and the Old Testament scholar who once made the point that the greatest role of a prophet is to call people to remember the mighty acts of God. One of your great, if there is any great project of your generation, is to recognize that our, our generation did not pass it on very well to you. We, we gave you a domesticated gospel, we gave you a truncated one. And your job is to recover the actual gospel of the New Testament. We apologize. You're going to have to do a little Toyota recall we want you to go, we want you to, and I, I almost, I wish at times I was 25 years old and I could be a part of your great project. But I'm here to tell you that I believe that you have the great capacity under God to do this far better than we could even imagine. As you reread the Bible with fresh eyes, as you rediscover the truth of the gospel in fresh ways, and you help to rediscover the great treasure that God has given to us. In chapter 8 of Nehemiah, that he tells us about more than the walls of Jerusalem or the gates being rebuilt, we're told he also rebuilt the pulpit. We don't often focus on that, but that's what it says in verse eight, verse, chapter eight, verse four. A high wooden platform was built for the occasion of proclamation. And Ezra was called to read the Word of God. And he opens the Word of God and he begins to publicly read Scripture. This is our, the seventh part in this series, reading Scripture as a means of grace. In Wesley's sermon uh, on the means of grace, this is number 16 in the, in the uh, standard collection, his second means of grace is reading Scripture right between prayer and the Eucharist. Isn't that wonderful? Nehemiah, the governor, and Ezra the priest appoints 13 Levites, and Mara knows all 13 of them, if you want to refresh you enough later on. What we don't find are a list of megastars. We don't see 5th century B.C. version of Christian celebrities. We don't find famous platform speakers. These are not the household names that we know then or now. We find Levites whose names we have never heard of. I want to give them to you again. Jeshua, Bonnie, Sharibia, Jamin, Akub, Shabbatiah, Hodiah, Messiah, Kalita, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, and Peliah. These are Levites you have not heard of, but God put them in the Word of God. And He says in verse 8, they read from the book of law, the law of God, making it clear and giving the meaning so the people could understand what was being read. The Word of God was being publicly read and publicly heard. There's a unique power to God's Word when it's being spoken and heard. And for the first time, my wife and I, after, I don't know, I'm not, maybe 25 years of marriage or something, we had been married forever. And we, well, short time. and <laughs> <laughs> Passing like the night. We married for 25 years and we never had actually read the Word of God to each other out loud. We just had to read the whole Bible out loud to each other. It was great. We got one of those Bibles that has no verses or, or chapter headings or anything, just the Bible, just the text. We read it. It was amazing. Hearing the Word of God. You know, we live in a post-Gutenberg world, and that's mostly a good thing. But by the time of the 18th century and continuing to the present, the Word of God is overwhelmingly encountered silently as we read the text. Evangelicals even have heralded this as the importance of your daily Quiet time. But in the process, our ears have not become engaged. And there's something about it, you know, I love the fact that even in the, some of the churches that we would disdain and say, you know, the church is a disaster. You'll never hear the gospel from the pulpit. One of the most interesting about those churches, many of them will have an OT reading, an NT reading, a psalm reading, and a gospel reading. And I have seen over and over again people transformed by the reading of God's Word, even if it's not accompanied by a proper exposition. I mean, you know, how much more to have that too? I'm not diminishing that, but the point is, is that God ha- God's Word has an inherent power to it. And you should feel uh, a joyful invitation to read lots of it to your congregation. And, and the early church, if you look at the whole early catechesis, it was a lot of Scripture reading they did. Wesley himself teaches us through his own experience the unique power of hearing God's word. Our whole movement really began in some ways on May 24th, 1738. And if you know the story, Wesley goes down, of course, to that place called Aldersgate in a quarter to nine, he begins hearing something, right? He hears uh, Martin Luther's preface, the book of Romans, and his heart is strangely warmed. And the world's history as we know it was changed. We would not be here today if it wasn't for that. What you may not know is who was reading that night. You know, think about it. We always talk about, you know, someone read. Well, who is that someone? He's one of these Josiahs, one of these people you've never heard about. But if you go to the standard edition of Wesley's Journal, they thankfully provide this for us. His name was William Holland. He was not a pastor. He was a layperson. He owned a painting business. He was a painter. And he had been a Christian, a, a vivified, you know, heart-changed Christian for one week. One week. He had encountered, he, he was brought into a little band meeting of Charles Wesley, which included, by the way, Peter Bowler. What a remarkable band that was, must have been. And they they brought they they were having the meeting and Charles Wesley was sick that night, and they said meeting at Charles's home, so they went over there so he could stay you know reclined on the bed or whatever sofa or whatever he was, and so they came in there, and uh, he was part of that, and he was got to be there that night. And Charles Wesley, even in his weakened state, he read Luther's preface to the book of Galatians. This is not about Luther's amazing prefaces, <laughs> but. Luther, the whole point, of course, Luther just, the whole thing is exposition of text that Paul taught, right? So it's about, really, about Scripture. He, uh, Charles Wesley read Luther's preface to the Galatians that night, and William Holland was gloriously converted. So he said, you know, these prefaces are powerful. I'm going to read it next week at the Moravian meeting, and he did. And Wesley was there a week later and heard it on May 24, 1738. The power of the public reading of Scripture... Remember, uh, the Word of God says, faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. This is Paul's word to us today. I love the, the, the journey of Emmy Kegler in her uh, article in the Christian Century, Bruised and Blessed by the Gospel. She'd gone through a very tumultuous seminary experience, had, been, had the whole Word of God taken away from her, had been given all kinds of damaging data and information about the word of God. And so she had been really brought, catechized into hating God's word. And so she, who's called to be a pastor. She goes into a church with all that background. And so she asked God to help her and she began to daily read God's word. And she finally had this wonderful, I think she was somewhere in Genesis where the, the wrestling of Jacob happens, where she was, that's me. She identified with the whole thing. And she got herself totally turned around on the Word of God. And she made this great phrase in her article, which I just love. She said, I realize as a pastor, one of my chief callings is to love the Scriptures publicly. Isn't that a great phrase? We are called to love God's Word publicly. And the mission of Asbury is the recovery of this, recovery of God's Word, to go out to the ends of the earth and spread scriptural holiness throughout the world. We need a whole generation of Banis and Cheribias and Jamin's and Hodias and Kalitas and Azariahs. That's who you are. This is the need of the hour. And you've been inheriting this domesticated, truncated one, the kind of your best life now Christianity, and now's the time for you to recover something better, be a better reader of God's Word. According to Nehemiah 4, they rebuilt the walls of Jerusalem with a trowel in one hand and a sword in the other. Oh my goodness, God bless them. They understood the times they lived in. If you'd gone around the broken walls of Jerusalem and you'd interviewed all those men and women working on the walls, they would have told you without a doubt, they all would have preferred to have a tambourine in their hand. That's what they wanted. That's what you want. That's what I want. But it wasn't the time they were called to. They had to live with a sword in one hand and a trowel in the other. Because this was the world that God had called them to. Globally, the Church of Christ is growing and flourishing unlike any time in human history. This is an amazing time. There are amazing unfolding globally. We also are facing many, many challenges in the Western world. And you have to understand both of these dynamics. To fall in love with the church. To go about and rebuild the pulpit. The empowerment of the Spirit. And start the people in the Word of God. And remember, as a pastor or a leader, your job is not to invent doctrine, is to uphold it. We are in this great stream. We are to be faithful to what's gone before us. Asbury has no meaning in us. We're part of this great, grand tradition, the great semper ubique at of the church, the great always everywhere for everyone has been passed down to us. And never forget that whatever you do, God honors it, as part of the whole. Some of you will be called to go forth and preach to large congregations with thousands of members. Some of you will defend some remote outposts of the kingdom. But every place where you're faithful, the whole incarnation is present in seed form. Christ didn't work his way up to the cross, did he? And if he heals the leper, the whole incarnation is present when he touched the leper. When you go down to Highbridge, the whole incarnation is present there. You don't have to get on a denominational ladder to climb somewhere else to do the real ministry. There's no career path ahead of you. The only thing we have called is what John Bonhoeffer, I'm sorry, painfully reminds us: when Christ calls a man, He bids him come and die. That's the call of discipleship. Soren Kierkegaard famously said, "When Christ calls us." Christianity is the most dreadful wound that can ever be assaulted on a person. He says it has no compromise. It it takes everything from us. It demands everything. In the process, we are recipients of the pearl of great price. It's remarkable when the Word of God opens up with those words like, let there be light. We begin to get a glimpse of the power of God's Word to to enlighten the whole world. We hear those words in the scriptures, Lazarus, come forth. Those words again remind us the power of the spoken word of God and the word of Lazarus. That word to Latin not only vivifies him, but that same word echoes down to every grave and tomb and casket in history of the faithful. And it overturns death itself we get to join in that great song of the the eschaton, Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The power of death is in sin. The power of sin is in the law. But thanks be to God who gives the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Amen. We're part of this great power of God's Word. Jesus says, go into all the world and preach the gospel. Make it of all nations. That still goes forth and encompasses the world. We're part of that. This is the great stream. Our words mean nothing. Our words have no power. But the God's word, if we unite with that, has the power to change the world. And so we at Asbury, in this whole campaign, what it's about? It's about inhabiting a more robust, muscular, articulate Christianity that recovers the faith, preaching God's word in public, the power of the gospel to change a lost world. And this is what we are called to. 2012 was the 100th anniversary of the sinking of the Titanic. And, of course, as you all know, there were so many theories about what caused this amazing ship to sink. And they, the leading theory was that they had a faulty rudder on the Titanic, and this faulty rudder caused this disaster. Others said, no, no, it's about communication. They had poor communications. They didn't know where the ice was and all this. Others said it was uh, the angle that the ship hit and if it was this angle it was devastating and on and on and on until they finally uncovered the actual Titanic. And they could go down and research it. First shock, by the way, the Titanic is 2.37 miles below the surface. This was an extraordinarily difficult job. They went down 2.37 miles and they examined the wreckage and they found to their amazement. There was no like gaping hole in the side that you might imagine in your imagination. This Titanic instead looked like somebody had taken a zipper just unzip the side of it. And of course, the reason for that, and then the book, What Really Sank the Titanic, New Forensic Discoveries by Jennifer McCarty and Timothy Fouquet, they say it goes really back to something that It's like the, the O-rings, you know, in the, in, the, in the shuttle. It goes back to something that happened years earlier that actually happened that caused the Titanic to sink. The uh, manufacturer was Harland and Wolfe. And they were under so much pressure to secure quantities of iron to make the rivets for the vessel, they made some very crucial compromises. They were under uh, a competition with uh, a canard. This is a White Star Liner Company versus canard. These are all Belfast shipping yards to build the most fanciest, most beautiful uh, ships, cruise ships in the world. This translates to child labor, exhausting work schedules, and all kinds of pressure to meet deadlines and cut corners. In a rush to get the Titanic launched, uh, they, ran, they had run out of uh, first-rate iron. So they agreed among themselves to purchase substandard rivets. This is what holds a, sh- a ship together. And they had iron mixed in with, with um, other substances. The engineers at the time screamed about it, said this was not a good idea, this was below the standards of the, the ship and what was engineered to do, but they did it anyway. They eventually went down, and they, when they d- discovered the Titanic, they now brought up 49 of these rivets, and they have subjected them to like forensic tests, kind of like forensic files kind of thing, You know, where they do all their work, and the lady looks down and everything. And they discovered that, of course, these... Rivets were filled with all kinds of slag, and therefore made the rivets brittle. And the tests were done, showing that if they had the force they had, it would just it would just go right down the seam, which would happen. If they, even four compartments had had opened up, only the ship would have stayed afloat. But if five or more were to be break open, it would sink, which is what happened. Five of them were flooded, and fifteen hundred people went to their deaths. That's a story of a powerful reminder of the importance of not forgetting the fundamentals in building a major project. In the scale and the grandeur of a project like the Titanic, all they thought about was hardwood dance floors, hanging chandeliers, and solid brass faucets. It was all too easy to not worry about things like rivets. But in fact, It was the rivets that made the whole thing seaworthy. And today in the church, I hate to say it, but so much of the emphasis is on our version of make sure you put down hardwood floors, make sure the chandeliers are nice, make sure we have brass faucets in our bathrooms. And we don't, we forget the rivets, the very thing that makes the church of Jesus Christ seaworthy, the Word of God, the supremacy of the gospel to change a lost world. The power of the spirit. These are all the things, the, the, the glorious truth of the gospel, the cross and the resurrection of Christ. These are the things that would actually build the church and make it strong. So in the midst of our headwinds, let's not, let's not worry about the time we're in. Let's embrace it. Let's thank God for it. He's given us this great opportunity to rebuild to do what Nehemiah did, to boldly pick up that trowel, pick up that sword at times, and to rebuild the walls that God has called us to uh, rebuild in our day. And thanks be to God that his word can guide us. Amen. Amen.